Hi, welcome to Case Closed from Macmillan Podcasts, the show where the bad guy doesn't get away with it. My name is Charlie Spicer. And I'm Christy Westgard. Last week, we looked at the women Eli seduced and was in contact with after Barbara's murder. We heard about Shelley, the woman he left Amish life for, and Misty, the woman he got pregnant. There was Sherry, the single mother he'd been caught having sex with in his shop, and Tabitha, a friend of his who he'd connected with Barb Raber. And Barb Raber is where we left off. So today it's all about Barb. Who was she? What sort of relationship did she have with Eli? And did she play a role in Barbara's murder? Barb throws a wrench that no one expected into this case, and she complicates our idea of what it means to pull the trigger, something we talked about in our last season of Case Closed, surrounding the murder of Rusty Schneiderman. And so, to lay out some structure for this episode, we're first going to do a deep dive into Barb's past, because it really informs her actions after she met Eli and onwards. Then we're going to look at Eli and Barb's relationship. Here we go. Barb Raber grew up in a family famous for tragedy. That sounds dramatic, but her childhood was marked by death. Barb's parents brought her up in the New Order Amish, and this was a different time for the Amish in the 1960s, when the Internet wasn't even a dream in the public's mind. Barb's parents were named Kate and Menno Miller, and they, like many Amish of the time, saw children as a blessing from God. Children also provided extra hands, because more hands make less work. With no electric or gas-powered appliances, this makes a difference to an Amish couple. And so nine months after they were married, Kate and Menno gave birth to a son named Michael. And they couldn't be more happy. But as time passed, Michael wasn't progressing normally. At five months, he couldn't hold his head up, and he seemed slow to react. At seven months, he got a severe case of spinal meningitis that further weakened him. And he started hitting his head on his crib until it bled. Soon he was diagnosed as mentally disabled. The Millers gave birth to three other sons after Michael, but each one suffered from health issues that doctors couldn't seem to pinpoint. They thought that the Miller sons had something called PKU. It's an inheritable condition where the body just can't break down an amino acid called phenylalanine. The boys were showing symptoms that looked a lot like PKU. They often got pneumonia and they had swelling on the top of their feet and around their eyes. But when the boys were tested for PKU, the results came back negative and doctors were stumped. It turns out that what the boys actually had was a rare genetic disorder called inborn error of metabolism. This meant that they weren't breaking down food to turn it into energy. With today's medicine, the boys could have been treated and properly cared for. But in the 1960s, medicine was still in the dark ages about their condition. So over the course of eight years, all four of the Miller sons passed away. The oldest lived to be seven, and the youngest just six weeks old. Right before the death of their last son, the Millers started to adopt daughters. In all, they adopted three, with Barb being the middle girl. But the trauma of their parents losing four children so quickly impacted the girls deeply, even if only indirectly. 
that pall hung over that house. Everybody knew about that family and what they had suffered. And I think that even though Barb came into the family after that, I feel like that hung over her and her sisters too, to be a part of something so tragic as to lose four brothers. The oldest girl of the three, Edna, led and continues to lead a relatively undisturbed life. The youngest girl was a troublemaker and disobedient. The middle child, Barb, was a liar by any measure. She made up stories, she fibbed, she lied, seemingly for no reason at all. This pattern of behavior continued into adulthood. Shortly after she was 22, she left the New Order Amish for the conservative Mennonite faith. Leaving the Amish for the Mennonites is pretty common among those communities. The Mennonites tend to be less restrictive and more spiritual. There are Mennonites who follow a lot of the customs around clothing or driving that the Amish follow, but the Mennonite group that Barb joined did allow driving and a lot of the conveniences of normal life. Our author Greg Olson has spent a lot of time interacting with both communities, and he had this to say about the two groups. The Mennonite church and the Amish church share a lot of similarities, but they're also divergent. The Amish people are far more conservative in their world than the Mennonites. The Mennonites do, you know, they have a hair covering for the women, um, but they allow other modern touches into their homes, like driving a car or having a refrigerator, electricity, all of those things. And those conveniences and the freedom that came with them are part of why Barb left the Amish to become a Mennonite. She wanted her freedom at 22, and 15 years later, when she'd married Ed Raber and had three sons, she still felt that pull. So Barb began having affairs to satiate her desire to not be tied down. Eli wasn't the first, but he was the one that stuck around. Their relationship didn't make much sense from the outside. Barb was 10 years older than Eli, with mousy brown, shoulder-length hair that was starting to gray. She had this tired, hangdog face and these oversized glasses. Barb had a reputation in the community as the kind of woman who really liked the company of other men. She was lonely. She was lonely at home for whatever reason, and she felt that she was more alive and happier in the company of men. Barb met Eli many years before the murder. Eli had a connection to Barb's husband, Ed. And ever since, she'd become Eli's go-to driver for everything from hunting and fishing to appointments for his business. Barb became known as the taxi lady around town. For Barb, driving the Amish allowed her to get away from the house as much as she could, and it gave her easy access to men who needed a ride. And sometimes the back of the car was the destination in and of itself. They suspected that Barb was carrying on with some of her, the rides that she would pick up. Eli and Barb's sexual relationship spanned several years, though they'd tell different stories on exactly how long. Eli claimed to police after the murder that he and Barb were only intimate once in January of 2009, a few months before Barbara's murder. But Barb tells it differently, and her story aligns more with the gossip in the Amish community. She told police the last time she and Eli had sex was in May of 2009, only a month before the murder, 
and that their affair had lasted several years. The two would have sex in a variety of places, but primarily the barn outside of Eli's house. It was easy, and it was private. Their relationship grew stronger when Eli left the Amish. The experience of leaving the Amish can be a unique one, but Barb understood because she'd done so herself. Barb could also be one of the boys, and she enjoyed hunting and fishing. Her preferred gun, one she was notorious for using, was a 410 gauge shotgun. When asked if Eli was having any other affairs, Barb said she only knew about one other woman, but not her name. When asked about Eli's marriage, Barb claimed that it had its problems, but seemed fine from an outsider's perspective. She seemed to forget that she was hardly an objective third party. And Barb's own marriage was a sham. Her husband, Ed Raber, was loving, but naive about what his wife was getting up to. He suspected something was going on with Eli and hoped that Barb would stop driving him around so much. Ed and Barb were in church counseling to resolve some of their issues, but Eli had a hold on Barb that went beyond her vows to Ed. Barb was nothing special to Eli, though, and he used her in the same ways he used all other women, as vehicles for his sexual satisfaction. But every so often, Eli would entertain the more core desires of his lovers, like their desire for a companion or to be taken care of. He'd act supportive to get them to fall for him. But it was never genuine. He was always angling to get something out of it. Remember in the last episode, we mentioned Eli reaching out to past lovers in the months before the murder? Or joking with people like Tabitha about killing his wife? Was this all lip service? And what happens when a man as manipulative as Eli meets a woman looking for a connection and a way out of her life? After the break, we take a look at the dark side of this relationship. One of Barb's favorite topics to brag about was her girlhood. She'd talk about how she had more gentlemen callers than Blanche Dubois, the vain and simpering Southern belle from Tennessee Williams' classic, A Streetcar Named Desire. Childhood friends described her like this. She wanted attention. People would back off when they got to know her. It's clear that this is a woman who sought validation outside of herself, so she was particularly vulnerable to Eli's manipulation. Barb might even describe herself as being in love with Eli. So when Eli talked about his wife, talked about how bad she was and how much he disliked her, Barb listened. When Eli joked about killing his wife, Barb listened. When Eli started asking Barb to kill his wife, did Barb listen? Before the break, we talked about the bizarre and disturbing pattern Eli had gotten into where he was reaching out to old girlfriends in the months before the murder and making comments to them about killing his wife. Barb wasn't an exception, but Barb was the only one to take his request seriously. As Barb and Eli got deeper into their relationship, um, a sexual relationship, they were thinking of ways to get rid of Barbara. They thought of all different kinds of ways. I mean, one of the things was they would get some rat poison 
and put it into some spiced cupcakes. And Barb thought that would be a good plan because if they were spicy enough, nobody would be able to taste the poison in them. I think in Barb's mind, if she wanted to spend more time with Eli, she'd have to do what he wanted. She'd have to kill Barbara. So when Eli asked what poisons could be used to kill a person, Barb didn't skip a beat. She went through the poisons that were readily available on her farm. Tempo for getting rid of insects around farm animals. Golden Malrin placed in peanut butter or soda for taking care of the troublesome raccoons that could come around the farm. Barb got her hands on some sleeping pills that she thought might do the trick, and she and Eli actually made a first attempt at killing Barbara. Eli knew that Barbara loved the soda Sierra Mist, so he decided to dissolve some pills into a glass and set it on the kitchen counter for Barbara to drink. And Barbara did end up taking a sip. But what she tasted was off, and she spit it out into the sink. She asked Eli what was in the glass, and now it's Eli's turn to be caught off guard. He came up with a quick lie, saying that he'd put sleeping pills into the drink, and he was planning to down the contents to kill himself. And this is such an Eli move, to turn his murder attempt into a fake suicide. By doing so, he got the sympathy of Barbara, who ends up telling him something along the lines of, I'd give my life to make sure you didn't end up in hell. It looks like poison is no longer an option, so Eli moves on to the next idea that he had. He proposes to blow up the house. And this plan is just sick. Eli knows that blowing up the house means that he'd kill his five children as well as Barbara. And he didn't care. Reportedly, Eli commented, The kids will go to heaven because they're innocent. Finally, Eli and Barb settled on shooting Barbara. It would be quick and wouldn't involve other people. They started to work out the logistics. And it's good to note that at this point, Eli's been ironing out his plan to kill his wife for years. Beyond the sleeping pills, though, he hasn't gotten very far. But he's about to get the push he needs to carry out his plan to completion. Here's Greg. The plan to kill his wife was really sparked by the discovery by one of his children of him and a woman having sex in the shop. That really, you know, made Eli really, I think, push Barb. We're going to shift a bit to talk about the hours leading up to the murder and the hours after. We already saw the crime through the eyes of the children and our first responders, but this time we're going to look at it from the perspective of the evidence we have on Eli and Barb. That evidence is primarily in text messages they sent to each other. We'll go over these texts in depth in the next episode, but for now, just know that these messages are the key to reconstructing the evening that Barbara was killed. So we know that Barb and Eli were in contact leading up to June 2nd. Picking a day wasn't all that difficult because of Eli's frequent fishing trips. They chose to coordinate around one of the outings. According to Eli, before he left, he went to the basement to unlock the door. And this was so that Barb could get into the house. Then he texted Barb. Barb got into her car with her 410-gauge shotgun, her favorite gun and one she'd used frequently on hunting trips. She parked near the Weaver house, her car leaving tire marks in the dirt. Again, according to Eli's later statement to police, 
Barb went into the house and shot Barbara while she slept. The gun used was a 410-gauge shotgun. There's disagreement about the actual step-by-step progression of the murder. We'll go into all of the different versions later. But first, let's jump to the next day, when the community found out one of their own had been murdered. Barb's sister reports getting a hysterical call from Barb, saying that Barbara Weaver had been murdered. Barb also spoke with Eli's friend, Tabitha Melton, who Barb shared a casual relationship with. It was Tabitha who'd called Barb first to check in after hearing the news. Tell me what the hell's going on. This is a joke, right? It's not real. No, it's real. What happened? Someone broke into Eli and Barbara's house and shot his wife with a 410-gauge shotgun. Barb was also in contact with Eli over text. She sent him a message saying, Whatever you do, don't give them your cell phone. Please. You'll remember from our last episode that Barb was actually the account holder for both Eli and Tabitha's cell phones. So she's the only person with the authority to change the phone numbers associated with the account. And that's just what she did next. Barb was also busy making calls to none other than Mark Weaver. As a refresher, Mark was one of the men on the fishing trip with Eli the day of the murder. When Mark answered, Barb peppered him with questions. Mark had received a lot of calls that day from other people in town who were trying to understand what was going on and to compare notes. But Barb's call was different. Her questions were super specific, and many of them seemed to be digging for information on who people thought the killer was. Of course, speculation like this isn't too strange, but something about the frenzied way Barb was acting made Mark pause. And Barb continued to text and call Mark throughout the day until he finally started ignoring her. He was confused enough by Barb's hounding that he had his father listen to the voicemails she left. As they were listening, Barb called Mark again. Mark put the phone on speaker so his father could listen in this time. Where is Eli? Did the police talk to him? Do they think Eli killed her? Are they looking for someone else? Mark's father urged his son to let the police know right away. And it wasn't just Mark who was getting strange calls. It turns out Eli was also bugging his friend Steve from the fishing trip for what he knew about the investigation. But are these messages evidence of a killer? Mark and Steve decided not to read too much into the calls. They attended Barbara's funeral the next day to show their support. But they did keep some distance from Eli. Detective Chuhi and Lieutenant Garrison also came to the funeral, just in case any suspicious figures showed up. But the people who caught their attention were those who weren't in attendance, like Barb and Ed Raber. Remember, to most of the community, Ed, Barb, and Eli were longtime friends, though the rumor mill about Barb and Eli was always churning. Ed and Barb later said they'd driven up together to Illinois during the funeral to drop off some equipment for Ed's job. But usually Barb didn't go on trips like that. So what made this time different? The last part of the timeline surrounding Barbara's murder involves the day after her funeral. Based on texts found between Barb and Eli, it looks as though they ended up meeting each other in Eli's barn. In police interviews, Eli would claim the rendezvous was for work reasons. He needed Barb to deliver some feed. But the detectives would later come to the conclusion that they met because Barb was coming apart. Supposedly, during this meeting, she asked Eli for help cleaning the gun. Eli reminded her of the process he had taught her to cover her tracks. 
Get rid of the gunpowder residue by cleaning the barrel with acetone. And don't forget to clean the trigger and hammer, too. Use a brush, an old toothbrush, steel wool, or a cleaning polishing rod. Finish it off with a good wipe with a dry cloth. As Eli and Barb conferred in the barn, Assistant District Attorney Edna Boyle was building a case. The first thing on her list? Get access to those text messages. To do that, she'd need a warrant. She knew between Eli's online dating account and the interviews with Sherry, Tabitha, and others who heard Eli talking about his desire for Barbara to be gone, they had enough evidence to justify the warrant for the texts. On our next episode, we're going to dig into those text messages. What secrets lie in cell phones? How do these messages end up helping the police make a case? We'll dive into the body of evidence so far and how that evidence ultimately leads to some arrests. So stay tuned for next week on Case Closed. Case Closed is a production of Macmillan Podcasts. It's hosted by Charlie Spicer and Christy Westgard and produced by Christy Westgard. Scripting support was provided by Becky Celestina. Production editorial support is provided by Jasmine Faustino. Thanks also to our voice actors, Matt DeMaza, Sarah Grill, Robert Allen, Katie Rabitsky, Alyssa Keene, Jasmine Faustino, Leon Profiter, Emily Miller, and Morgan Ratner. You can find more information about Macmillan Podcasts at macmillanpodcast.com. That's M-A-C-M-I-L-L-A-N podcasts.com.